There's a port on a western bay that serves a hundred ships a day. Of this harbor town where she works, looking whiskey down. Not some man, not around. Hear her say, Yes, love. I say, I say, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. Junction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and making them sound right. Junction, junction, what's your function? Okay, so today we're going to wrap up talking about Ministry for the Future, the book that I read. We'll fi I'll figure something out soon uh, for another book. Don't know for now, but this will be the last one about, uh, about that book. And I'll... I'll admit I haven't really talked about it that much at all so far. You really just sort of talked around it. And that's because a lot of the stuff that it's talking about, I really don't have a lot to say. Like his discussion of things like uh, uh, using uh, central banks to in implement blockchain technology to track money and then create uh, like carbon coins. Like it, it's elegant as, as Saul uh as Cy Abelman says, uh, it's clever, but is it convincing? Uh, because it's true. You could use those mechanisms to do that. Or I presume you could. I don't know enough about this shit. <laughs> I'm not an expert on anything at all, period. If I have any talent at all is in just stringing together concepts in a way that makes something make sense. To somebody explaining something just using a a uh, a sculptured slab of like common knowledge and you know conjecture to tell a story that's convincing enough about a general point to make you think that that might be true and that truth is what matters uh i don't know how to do anything i have no idea how to do anything um so, sure, you could probably use carbon coin. I mean, the idea that you could price the future assets of a world that isn't gone. Hey, maybe that could actually inject some, uh, like, rational interest 
into the machinery of capitalism. Maybe you could take that drive towards profit, which is destroying the world because it cannot, uh, it cannot accommodate externalities. Because the very definition of any uh, closed economic political structure is that it, ex- it cannot uh, internalize uh, externalities. The whole point of an economic system is to vent off externalities, to have externalities fall on those who are not part of the people in any broad sense. First, it, start, it starts and is always greatest, not even with humans, but with animal and plant and, and, and uh, environmental suffering and externalities. Those externalities are baked into every economic system. And I don't know if you can ever really remove them at all because, you know, you are taking from the environment in order to sustain, you know, an artificially high number of human people, number of humans. Like we have gone beyond the, the planet's carrying capacity for us because we were able to figure out a way to uh, efficiently utilize the, the resources around us in such a way that allowed for the storage of surplus, the concentration of abstract value that could be then used to create uh, uh, cultural structures, technological structures that expand our efficiency in our use of resources, which then allows for, at the center of any system, comfort, ease, pleasure, and at the end of any system, uh, people who are compelled at the point of a spear to do play, uh, work. And that is the human externality, the people that have to suffer. And, and of course, through all the structures of exploitation, everyone suffers in an abstract sense. But that suffering is felt as a social alienation only at the point of the spear. And that is the defining characteristic of all civilizations. But previous civilizations that rose and fell we're able to collapse and have it not be the end of the world, have it to be, have it be a local apocalypse because they were uh, localized systems. They had borders. Things were happening beyond those borders that meant that no matter how many externalities they created within this ecosystem that they lived within, they would collapse within it. Malthusian uh, uh, inputs would begin to rear their heads and the system would check itself naturally. But now, for the first time, capitalism has created a global system in which its externalities cannot be felt outside. They have to be felt by everyone because there is no outside anymore. <clears throat> and when I'm saying carrying capacity, I'm talking about humans living in a pre-civilizational context. Humans living as hunter-gatherers, that is the Earth's carrying capacity, in the sense that that is what allows for a natural homeostasis to, to persist between humans and the environment. As soon as you introduce a technologi- technology as, co- as uh, basic as agriculture, as soon as you introduce fixed, settled civilization, as soon as you introduce uh, surplus and then the exploitation of that surplus in the form of leisure time by a class of humans, you're going to create the ability, the aperture for humans to start fiddling with their environment in such a way to figure out ways to sustain themselves more comfortably in a context of uh, scarcity. And as soon as that happens, you're outside the question of the natural uh, Malthusian context. 
from now on, technology is going to be the wild card in every version of human civilization, which means that we very well could have the technological capacity to, to live on a planet with 8 billion people on it, but not exhibit, uh, not one that uh, emits uh, ecological biosphere level externalities in the form of CO2 and just the general poisoning of the goddamned biosphere. And we are now caught at the end state that every civilization comes to because the structures, the, the social and technological and cultural uh, reifications that emerge from a society coming to terms with its environment, a society coming into being, going from people living in a natural rhythm to living at a human pace, when that introduces itself, uh, you are setting a time bomb because the civilization these people are going to build and the people that this civilization is going to produce, that's the most important part. Like at the level of their i their belief structures, their deep conceptions of themselves that define how they act. Like it engraves them. Like the way that culture, the way that there, our cultural superstructure engraves itself on us. The people that this civilization is going to be, create are going to depend on a social, on a, uh, on a technological relationship with the land in the form of an extractive economy, some sort of agricultural, either slave-based or, or uh, feudal or whatever the fuck, however it's arranged, somebody is working for somebody else in a field somewhere and extracting uh, and paying through a network of patronage that at every level makes people more committed to a social order than to living in the wilderness because of the benefits it accrues to them. And that means that if the dynamic changes, if the relationship, if the energy inputs that you're always assuming are going to be there to be more efficiently used by the social organ, if those go down, your society will not be able to internally react to that, will not be able to change to meet changing material conditions. It can't do it. It won't be able to step down from its degree of inequality and its degree of, uh, of idleness at the top that necessitates the degree of uh, waste the system makes in order to sustain itself, the amount of externalities it produces. So when those externalities start pour it, uh, start unbalancing the ecological relationship between the biome and the human civilization, as soon as that gets tipped, people might be aware that something is wrong. People might know that something has to change, but they will not be able to imagine, they will not be able to uh, enact a system or a response that will actually change that will actually allow them to survive because they can't do that without dismantling the thing that supports them. They will not do it. They will not climb down from their position of social advancement. Why would they? Because they can always imagine themselves to have another explanation for what's going on. They will always be able to build a legend that includes this reality then and find alternative explanations that's why when uh you know when the i bet when the mayans uh things started going south down there uh they didn't think to you know oh let's maybe be more uh 
maybe be a little more hands-on with our agricultural output instead of just extracting more and more uh, uh, crops from exhausted soil. No, let's just uh, sacrifice a few more people. No social order can do it, and ours can't either. That is why the only salvation for humanity, short of some sort of collapse-based revolution of human social order that transcends capitalism, is technological intervention. Because historically, the only thing that has kept the wolves at bay in any social order is that the technological innovation is ahead of the entropy in the system. That, that, that the, uh, that like, there's, so there's always entropy in every one of these systems. It start, it, the, the clock starts tipping immediately. The thing that holds it at bay, the thing that regulates its progress, is the degree of technological sophistication the society responds with, its ability to deal with the entropy. And so at this late point, our only salvation from within the system will be some technological intervention that slows the rate of decay. Now, is that likely? No. But it's a story that you can believe in if everybody at the top of the social order is bone deep convinced in maintaining at the expense of everything. At the expense of everything, because even if it causes the deaths of everybody at the bottom, they can still delude themselves until the very last moment that they will be able, they will be preserved. That's what being at the top of a social order means. It means that the downside of any situation, the pain and the misery and the awfulness and the alienation, the system screaming out, the cries of the earth, the blood of the planet as it's being wrung, it's not being felt by anybody who has any control over the thing. The only people feeling it, or the people who are feeling it most, are the most removed from any levers of power, the most, the most disorganized. And that is why it cannot be changed from within. And that's why the that's why the richest man on earth now, or used to be, will be again probably, is con artist Leon uh, Leon Trotsky is uh, Elon Musk, because Elon Musk embodies a technological salvation. We can still consume. We can still be who we are, culturally. We, can, we don't have to step down from our position because, hey, there's going to be uh, batteries and, uh, and solar cars. and Anyway, there's always Mars if we fuck this place up. As long as that fantasy exists, that it will sustain any social resistance to the change that needs to happen. And that is why that's where counter-hegemony comes in. That's why you don't get this system overthrown from within. Bernstein and the uh, the revisionists were wrong, uh, absolutely one hundred percent incorrect. We can say that that was that was a big uh, wrong. And the thing is, people at the time could be pers- could be forgiven for thinking that wasn't the case. But what was making their decision for them was not any real rational observation of reality. It was the fucking dinner sitting in their stomachs. That's what convinced the social democrats to go along with revisionism. It was their full stomachs. It wasn't any kind of uh, uh, logical or imperial uh, empirical case. So that's where we are, and that is why the human hope 
really is that in the coming and not even coming in the unfolding collapse, like we really need to think of this as a slow, slow motion uh, deterioration, because as soon as the, the, uh, the political uh, basis for the world uh, uh, capitalist system, which is the American, uh, the American middle class broadly construed, uh, that they began to feel alienation from the system. That is the one thing that all the efforts of capitalism in its expansion technologically and, and uh, colonially were designed to, um, to keep at bay. And that was those closest to the center of this social organism being feeling that this the uh, the the decay of the system, feeling alienated from a system that they could sense was dying, and as soon as you have that, you have introduced uh, poison in the gas tank. You, you're sugar in the gas tank of this thing in a way that no no uh, rational system could produce. Only a system that was predicated on a inhuman algorithm, that of profit extraction that operates independent of all human wills. This is the important part. Is that capitalism is inhuman. The thing that defines it is that it is contained in no human vessel. I have talked before about how when the richest people in the world or the most powerful people in the world get together in their councils of state, as uh, Ned Beatty would say, uh, RIP to a legend in network, that the ultimate power to make all those decisions is not anyone in the room. It is an algorithm churning in the background, grinding humanity into, a, into, into paste. But the, the reason, and the reason that capitalism is doing that is this, is this virus taking over humanity is because those at the, at the, at the closest points to its necessary nodes of uh, like, social and technological infrastructure, because this thing has to operate through human institutions. The people who staff that, the people who are closest to it, have to feel only the benefit of the surplus uh, enjoyed, not the pain of the surplus extracted. And America was able to save capitalism from itself in World War II. I mean, a closed system of European capitalism without, without America to, to be the vent and then accumulator uh, and, then, and then chassel, chalice, uh, after the, the final confrontation that Marx had uh, predicted it began in 1914 and, and ended with World War II, not one. It's the second 30 years war properly understood. Thirty Years' War gives birth to the uh, to the settled state, uh, uh, the settled state uh, competition, uh, the settled the settled state competitive framework that made up the Westphalian system that ended the Thirty Years' War, is what made capitalism the dyna- the uh, overriding system that that made it obliterate the world, that made it that made it inevitable, because. The tools of capitalism had existed in societies throughout history all over the place. The Chinese had all of them well before uh, Europe. Uh, 
But post-Roman Europe, and specifically post-Westphalian Europe, had a combination of economic, uh, 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 economic and cultural complexity created by you know uh, the, the feudal system that had created enduring structures of power. Uh, but all of them contained increasingly within these hard-shelled uh, state systems that were in comp- competition with each other for resources, prestige, power, and ultimately uh, uh, survival because these closed systems would eat each other. They would, uh, would eat themselves from within. Every closed system within capitalism where the externalities are contained will eat itself. And that's what happened in Europe in the 30s. And it didn't happen to the United States because the United States was where uh, all those social conflicts that were engendered by that system were vented off into a place where the free real estate expropriated from Native Americans and the free labor expropriated from African slaves allowed them to create a new social order in the shadow of the European order with the same people at the top, but with a broader base of legitimacy among the non-elite exploited classes because there was this free real estate to give out. There was a racial, uh, eventually there was, there was a racial wage associated with being white. And there was always, if you were within the tent of, of, of the polity, there was always land to give away. And there was always the specter, not of exploitation, but of capital ownership in the form of the small hole, the yeoman farm, which over time transformed into the small business. And we are now living at the tail end of this system where those middle-class people are having their social order dissolve around them. And that is making them alienated from a system where they're actually in a position to do something about it. Because they could relieve their labor. Uh, Or they could destroy the political mechanism that allows the thing to go. Because the United States... You could absolutely get a case where the economic conditions do not really require some sort of civil war, but a genuine civil conflict just because these idiots have to keep believing in something. And so you let them play out in the cultural realm and in the political realm, their little fantasy culture fight that can express all this alienation without engendering class consciousness. You can do that, but the cost is over time as politics becomes more uh, spectacleized and as people's identities as consumers and spectators becomes enmeshed with their political identities, they're going to demand more out of their politics. It is going to have to be a better entertainment than it had been when you uh, thought you were going to get something out of it that would help you. If you're going down on a sinking ship, all you want is the theater of pain of others. If you cannot guarantee any pleasures for your own self, you can guarantee pain for others. And that means that you're going to get a sharpening of, of a conflict over culture in a way that uh, very well might see the political legitimacy of the state fatally compromised. Which is simil- That's basically what happened in the Civil War. There was no necessary conflict from an economic perspective between the slave Slave uh, economy and northern industry at that point. There was absolutely none. As many people have pointed out, there was a well-lubricated economic conveyor belt between the um, 
the slave cotton fields of the South and the uh, counting houses of New York and then the mills of uh, Lowell and fucking Manchester. It was helping everybody. It was, and, and, and the system was, was growing. Uh, the problem was you did have uh, the first bucklings of the system as failure, slavery failed to continue its natural progression south because it had to expand. It has to expand to accommodate for all the externalities, all the burning up you're doing. You have to expand. And its expansion was contained, not by a natural flow. The United States probably could have pushed farther into South America if they'd really wanted to, by an, by the political conflict that prevented that from happening and that exacerbated the conflict at every point. Political considerations made the first civil war happen. Now, this is all assuming that we are at a point where uh, – there is no more slack in the system for the first world babies at the end of the of the machine to get some treats. It really is what this comes down to. Is the system at the point where we can no longer rationally allocate at all, and that means that America, with its 5% of the population, with its uh, uh, sole function in the world economy to be consume uh, uh, beyond its, its means – and the emergence of other places for, you know, demand to be found, uh, then the system will, will just do the equation and, and, and bring the, uh, as Volcker said, uh, when he was appointed, uh, the, uh, living standards of the American worker are going to have to go down. And that has been the deal since then. And as it ha continues to go, it is going to continue to destabilize our political structure unless that trend can be reversed a little bit. And this Biden administration really is the, is the, the test of this. And it is, I think, a, a genuine fight at the top between people who have different opinions about this. This is a political question. Are we going to try to, to uh, take the slack that does exist in the system, uh, the and, and point it the spigot down. Take a haircut off of some of these rich people. And uh, and just put the spigot down a little bit. Give them some give them some ice cream. Give give them some treats. Or if if there's no more uh, political, there's no more the gears. You know, like there's a gear in the political system turned by. Uh, the economic system, and then is you know also turned back. You know, the the, the dialectical relationship between the base and the superstructure. Uh, if that gear is totally threaded now and stripped because of the mass hyper uh, explosion of capital over the last forty years and its concentration at the top, that that, that the distorting effect of that has been so stupendous that it has stripped the political system of any meaningful feedback loops into uh, uh, reining in the irrational algorithmic suicide bomb within capitalism, which is how the thing keeps from blowing up. What keeps the thing from overheating is the timely intervention of the political system into the economic system. 
because there is a there was a feedback loop that allowed for contact. We have reached the terminal. The argument could be made that when the seventies came and we've reached the terminal crisis point, where this thing was hitting uh, the limitations of its ability to continue to promise more surplus at the top half of a distribution than uh, suffer below it. As soon as that happens, the things start stripping, uh, and the power of money just obliterates the power of politics. And so we reach a point where the administrative American state, which emerged out of the Civil War, which started off creating this laissez-faire monster, but that was going to eat itself until the progressive era came in, clamped the hose down and said, okay, settle down. Same thing happened in the 30s. All of this, of course, facilitated by all that land, all that free real estate. And then after World War II, the promise of being the fucking headquarters of a global empire where we consume and others cons- uh, and others produce. And, and we work, but we do not work the hyper-exploited labor of those at the very end of the, of the resource line. It's uh, even if it's repetitive at a factory, you get, if you get a nice house and you get a, a four paid, four weeks paid vacation a year, and you get a TV, and you get a uh, you get a, two cars in the garage. It's not so bad, and it's nobody's fault that they took that deal. It's the only deal to take because the sufficient uh, superstructure, or I'm sorry, the sufficient uh, counterculture or counterhegemony had not been formed. The, the, what we never got uh, until now has been a uh, sufficient counter-hegemonic social formation to uh, confront capitalism. That was what the 20th century was a battle over. If if the existing working class could create uh, through institutions, both governmental and and, uh, social and cultural, could they create a a, a hegemony, a counter-hegemony that could, at a point of conflict, at a point of crisis, Make a honest contest with capitalism. And, 1980, and in 1989, it really is the death of that. Now we're in that post-communist era. And so after World War II, what we ended up getting was that the, the Soviets offering terms of peace that were suicidal, but which kept their particular cadre in power. And that's what I'm saying. This is what happens in all systems, is that the system cannot adapt to conditions that change because the conditions would then have, because then they would have to change the material structure in a way that would compromise their position of comfort and authority and power and ease within it, which they will never accede to. has to come from without either and and it's provoked naturally naturally by the ecosystem responding to the externality issue uh, which it's doing now uh, or some sort of counter-hegemonic social force from within or from without and since there's no from without anymore it's going to have to be some sort of international working class movement and uh the book 
Ministry for the Future is sort of a, more than anything a guidebook for those people, whoever they will be. It doesn't really want to get too deep into the question of how you get that because that's the big mystery of the age. If anybody knew, they shouldn't be writing a fucking book about it. Uh, they should be, you know, enacting it using their limitless like powers because you're a fucking genius. You can have ideas and theories, but you can't practice them because everything's paralyzed. And that's why we're going to have to all act out of faith. Because it's the only thing that can do it. But so the book is a handbook. Here's stuff you can do, uh, and so it it wants to persuade. And I think that somebody said just in the comments that it it's influenced by MMT. And the thing is, yeah, it is. And it has a whole it has a chapter about how MMT is correct. And my issue that exists that I have with MMT is simply this is that MMT is, like Georgism before it, a theory where the fact that it's true is the thing that will make it happen. The idea that because it is logical, because it is rational, it will be adopted. And I know you can say that's not true, but when you look at the evangelical fervor of the MMTers, it really does uh, undermine the point. They really think that posting is praxis because they think that if enough people believe in MMT, they will enact MMT. And I'm afraid that I disagree. I think that people will act because their exploitation under capitalism will find them spurred into a position of militancy and that their social relationship as workers will create bonds of association and cooperation that will then generate uh, actual institutions of coordinated power. And MMT, like the, the, the knowledge about where money comes from, that could be useful to them, but it's not going to change pe people's minds to do it. They're going to do it because they're, they're uh, because people are, are going to be driven to action. Because action is what makes uh, the people capable of fighting this thing. Because as we said, this thing creates people who are, who, who are programmed to not be able to, to overcome this thing. They are programmed, we are programmed to be docile citizens of this thing. Especially if we're at the center of the fucking, uh, of, of the candy fountain. We're, we're, sitting at, we're sitting tableside at the fucking chocolate wonderfall. Of course, even the most communistic of us in our ideals are still at a deep level beyond, beyond consciousness, addicted to a, a degree of comfort that feel if we feel imperiled will drive us to make rational decisions, even that we think are the decisions that are right for a communist to make or whatever, that are in practice designed to keep us comfortable. Because we are going to be, we are driven subconsciously to what we really want. The decision is not made at the level of con of uh, idea. It is not made at the level of uh, argument. Those things are the set dressing. Those things are the ritual enactment of the inscribing of your opinion that you already had, which was what lets me stay where I am, and I am of course talking about myself too. Why the fuck do you think that every decision I've made 
has landed on Continue to Be a Well-Renumerated Podcaster. Why the hell do you think I've made that decision? So, what's going to happen is people are going to change. People are going to molt. People are going to begin the uh, alchemical process. And that's because conditions are changing. And that's because the promises of the system are running out, which is the difference between this moment uh, and the 30s. Uh, and that is that in the 30s, that was a context where capital had sufficient. If uh, uh, there was ins- there was insufficient entropy in the system to uh, disallow a social peace, the system was such that they could afford a little democracy, and so therefore they could afford uh, a, a little unionization, uh, and they could afford higher wages. They could not afford greater worker control, but that was okay because workers were willing largely to trade worker control over the workplace for greater benefits and salary. There were some who didn't want to do that. Those were the true blue commies. But by the late 40s, when the true moment came, okay, what is this post-war world going to look like? Is this going to be the isolated Soviets against a global American empire? Or is this the moment? When communism in uh, the Soviet Union and the communism that had emerged in the United States through the union movement and that was the core of the most potent activists of all the labor unions in the United States after the World War II, if they could have pushed together uh, and contested capitalism, maybe say if uh, the president of the United States after uh, the president of the United States was either Franklin Roosevelt or, if he was going to die, uh, say Henry Wallace, a true blue progressive who really wanted to see a collaborative system that honestly could have brought about some sort of uh, a Cold War that won the that went the other way, basically, like a game of chess where where the pieces are formed, the starting positions different. But one way or another, we didn't get that. Instead, what happens after the biggest, if the huge explosion, the unprecedented strike explosion? that erupts right after the end of World War II. Because during World War II, the American labor movement had made a a no-strike pledge, no strikes during the war to win the war. And that meant there was five years of discontent and anger that it was going unredressed. And so in in 1947-48, you had this massive explosion of strikes in the United States, unprecedented in the modern era. And what did it lead to? The Red Scare and the Taft-Hartley Act the two things that would doom the American labor movement and ensure that when the 70s crisis came, the political class would be completely detached from the working class. When those guys gathered in their councils of state, they served up the working class like a fucking Mayan uh, uh, human sacrifice because there was nobody in the room to speak for the workers because they had had their militancy leached from them by their uh, defeat of their techniques of uh, power exercise through the Taft-Hartley and by the decapitation of the movement's vital uh, uh, ideologically motivated leaders. Because when those guys were gone, guess who's left? The mercenaries. The mercenaries and the idealists. 
the mercenaries and the idealists, the Reuters and the Hoffas. That's all you have left once you get rid of the commies. And the Reuters and the Hoffas will accommodate capitalism at both ends of the wicket until there's no more political working class to assert authority when the moment comes. The Reuters, by uh, totally investing the labor movement in this uh, partisan political thing, making themselves hostage to the Democratic Party the way that they did, lashing themselves to the mast of the Democratic Party, uh, or Hoffa being bought off by management just by pure corruption. It's in the miniature uh, the same way that uh, that the spoils were divvied up out of the new uh, economy of world after the Civil War. The, the, the ruling class, the, the ruling elites uh, just were, were gifted the company, were, were, were gifted graft in the form of free land to build railroads on and free public money and underwriting of loans legally through, the, through acts of Congress. Meanwhile, the lower classes were getting the graft that uh, guys like Taft and Roscoe Conklin and uh, George Washington Plunkett were just taking out of the civic government. That was that's how the the, the two halves of the social uh, world were bought off. And, you know, Walter Reuther, I think, was a much better guy than Jimmy Hoffa. I think he was, in many ways, a hero. But because of powers greater than him, there was nobody left to fight the fight. It was everybody was either a Hoffa or a, or a, or a, Hoffa or a Reuther. Everybody was either going to, at the at the point of uh, at the point of crisis, buckle because they wanted to keep their chair, or have their hands out. And so our hope relies in uh, just a application of destabilization and alienation at the core, coupled with destabilization and alienation that is, of course, echoing through the rest of the world, and like create some sort of counter-hegemony. I think that if it's going to be born anywhere, it'll probably be in the South America, honestly, not North America. But I mean, I don't think anybody at the center of empire can say that they're not, you know, that they're not political actors in some sense, or at least they have to believe they are, because this whole thing, the human race is going to survive if we believe in it, which is incredibly cheesy, but I'm sorry, it's true. Human human race will survive if we believe in it. And so we have to believe in something in two ways. We have to believe enough in other people's lives, meaning as much as ours, like at an imaginative and spiritual level, that we work for others having, and that gives it its own reward, that is not uh, the sanctimony of, of virtue, but is actual like enacted love. 
And that doesn't, and, and in that case, it doesn't matter if you have a, prof, a, a, a possibility of winning. It doesn't matter. But part of you, if you're a Westerner, certainly, is going to always be driven back towards that uh, narcissistic selfishness, uh, that, that uh, the refusal to accept the reality of anything but yourself as a, as a sensation unit. And, and therefore dedicating yourself to to accumulating those pleasant sensations. And doing that is at someone's expense and your own. And you feel it. And once again, you're always trying to stay ahead of that growing, that snowballing sense within you. That, you know, you are not in harmony. That you are unbalanced. Like at a, at the level of like, to, you know, energy. And in that position, people are going to come to the realization that their commitment to their lives is no longer sustainable. And that means that their lives have to change. And the virtue of it is that even if you're wrong and our check was cashed long ago and this is all over but the shouting and we live in the tail end, like we are, we are, we are in the last cars of a train that has already crashed into the mountain and is in the process of hitting it and our continued existence is merely the people at the, in the last train car sipping tea while a uh, process that will annihilate their social order is already carrying out its power and is already pulling the thing through space and it cannot be intervened with. Even if that's true, then you still did the right thing, not just in terms of an abstract virtue mongering, but for you. You did the right thing for you. At every point, you did the right thing for you. You did the thing that would give you the chance to live a life in harmony. Once again, very cheesy. And so that's what we're all seeking. We're all seeking harmony. And because we're propagandized, we are, imagine harmony can be found somewhere other than the struggle. Because the moment is, the crisis is here. <laughs> you know? So we all have to act like it. But that does not mean winding yourself up into anxiety about everything, which is what the internet is, exists to do. Twitter exists so that you can take that feeling of disharmony and that realization that this system cannot work. And what do you do? Instead of acting on that feeling, you spin that feeling out synthetically and are able to enjoy a, a, a frisson and a pleasure out of play acting your feelings and venting them out that way. But the fundamental imbalance is still there. So that harmony must be sought, regardless of any fact, without any question of reality, like, like objective reality. Because we're alive, there is hope. And so we have to act that way.
So I'd say that's the message of that book, or one of them anyway, and the one I took from it. <clears throat> because the, the, the thing that the book leaves to poetry and not uh, world building is the, that social context by which people change their behavior. Like he doesn't really say how, you know, the fact that all those French people occupied uh, Paris for like a year and a half or something. The point of that is just to describe through the eyes of the person who was there the feeling of doing something like that. And how, and then you have to, you put yourself reading it, you put yourself in that position and you imagine how that would feel. And what it would feel like is something fundamentally unlike your life. Something fundamentally unlike the world you know it. But that is, like all science fiction, recognizably us. So how did we get there? That's a question we have to ask ourselves, which is, of course, a big cop-out. But there is no one-size-fits-all answer. This is the answer that comes from within. But the good news is nobody has to think it. Nobody has to make it up. Nobody has to go an aha moment. People just have to work in their lives on good faith, and they will find the answers. One foot in front of the other, built up through context. And this is when, when people say, what is the dialectic? What's the point of that? To me, this is the point of it, is that it, it means that ideas cannot be imposed on a moment in time that you're living in. Because they're being made by action. The ideas are informing that action, but like the real concrete movement is not originating in a sphere of ideas and theory. What we're having is what, what our culture, what our, what our uh, political discourse is, is a fantasy whereby we're all pretending at a fundamental level that if we have the right idea, people will believe it. That is the MMT concept. That is the like non-revolutionary socialist concept. And I say, because of that, I'm not going to say MMT is wrong or pointless. And I think that a lot of the stuff that they've done is useful in certain Con, uh, tactical context but the demand that they seem to have that people embrace it because they think that as an idea it's going to have an effect as opposed to reminding us that this stuff are, these things are all instruments if you need an MMT go get one from the fucking toolbox but don't be starting with that you need to start with struggle and the tactical questions that come out of struggle the assumption of MMT and the and the and the and the, uh, and the rhetoric around it is that you can talk your way to this, which is what the Georgists thought too. The Georgists made a totally rational observation that you know, hey, ground rent is basically bullshit. This is this is a social good that cannot be uh, privatized. It, it's not rational, and it's like, yeah, okay, go tell your mama.
Reality is an open system, someone says. Well, you know what? I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how you can call this an open system when we're reached the point where the biofeedback loop is going to start impacting our energy input, uh, the energy inputs this thing depends on. Like we're going to get, they're saying California is going to have the, again, the worst fire season ever. Again, breaking the old record of last year, this summer. Now that open system is technology. Is Elon Musk showing up in a jetpack to create a carbon scrubber or some bullshit? So I would say that whatever openness was in the system and was, there was openness in the system. By the creation of our Wallensteinian world system of systems, this, this, uh, this machine where the entire thing is not being moved towards the rational human uh, goal that every human being on earth, except for like total uh, psychopaths or whatever, every human being on earth would prefer, which is some sort of, homeostatic relationship with our environment whereby we don't all die, whereby people are mostly comfortable. Of course, that's what we want. If we could all take a, take like a fucking vote on that, that's what we would vote on. The thing distorting us away from that and the thing that may have terminally distorted us away from that pulled us away from each other so that we can't come to that conclusion where we can't express that opinion is the fucking algorithm of capital accumulation that cannot consider these things. And that is dependent upon just pushing out externalities because they can't be priced. And so we're now, I would say, in a close reality until some techno savior comes along. And you know what might happen? Not ruling it out. Not saying 0% chance, low percent chance, low fucking percent chance. Now, of course, what this means crucially, though, this is not a guarantee, oh, we're all going to see some sort of collapse in our lifetime. No, the thing is going to keep shrinking. And eventually everybody's, uh, it's going to raise everybody's pant leg, but... The, the, the cultural narrative of continuity will persist because the people at the center who produce that culture and consume it most are going to be the most relatively protected. And what that means, does that mean a breakup into corporate cantons? Perhaps. A reassertion of nationalism and a creation of like competitive like national socialist system where all these uh all these populist governments wield capitalism towards the uh the uh the nationalist like social ends to serve to to save themselves but only slowing very very slowly the uh the actual drift towards total immiseration. That will end up in nuclear war. I don't think there's any question there. And that's why as tempting as the nationalist turn is, because, hey, you know, these are 
these are the ways people express citizenship. These things are real entities socially and psychologically. They have to be dealt with. And that's true. And everybody has to deal with that question. But you have to remember that if we assert nationalism in this crisis, that just means a reassertion of the model that World, that World War II uh, uh, annihilated and which would result in the same thing in the end. If you have a nation, if you have a worldwide state contest over resources, the way you did in Europe between 1914 and 1945, you will have a nuclear war. That's the third world war everybody was worried was going to happen after World War II. Is not an ideological conflict that we thought of as uh, the, that we thought the, um, Cold War as, but a multi-state conflict over resources. Those, in, those defined Europe for a thousand years, but they were small because Europe was only able to express itself technologically in relatively small units. But colonialism, imperialism, industrialism allowed them to express themselves in units that became catastrophic. That's why the United States rationalized the whole business after World War II and said, all right, now stop it. No more of this nonsense. We have a global capitalist system. And that's what they built. And its internal, con its internal rival, the Soviet Union, which was only able to co uh, compete with it as one of the state systems within the system that, it had, that the, the capitalism had created, eventually was obliterated. And so if we end up not creating a international counter hegemony, you're back to even if people get universal health care and things get better for people, you're back to interstate conflict over scarce resources with nuclear weapons. Now, of course, the X factor is, as things get worse, does that intensify the motivation to so solve these things technologically that then produces the breakthroughs that would have otherwise taken too long? Could happen. That's the hope that, we, honestly, at this point, we all have to hope for a little bit of that. We better hope that there are a few geoengineering uh, breakthroughs to come before the world revolution, if we really have any hope for a future. Because we, we're going to need to get carbon out of the air. That is not a question. So that technology has to exist. And if that means massively increasing funding for it, then you do that. But the system isn't going to do that absent much, much greater uh, uh, motivation to in the form of destabilization and crisis felt at the center. All right. Well, good talk. Good talk as always. Feel like we're getting places. Talk to y'all soon. On to the flippity flop.